The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. So if you would, uh, get out your Bibles and uh, open them to Mark chapter 8, and we're going to be studying verses 31 through 39. And so while you guys are opening up to it, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about what I do in Louisville when I'm not interning at churches in New England. I, um, I work at a hotel in Louisville on the campus of my school, and uh, in this hotel, there is a fireplace, and it's not really a fireplace, it is a fake fireplace. It has, it uses water vapor, lights, and fans to create the illusion of fire, and uh, I work at the front desk. The front desk is on one side of the lobby, and on the other side of the lobby is this fireplace. Now, every time someone comes in to check in, everybody's predictable. They come in, they look at me, they're like, dang, that's a really good-looking bearded man. And then they see this fireplace, and like a moth drawn to fire, these people just come over there, and they do this thing. <laughs> How does this work? Is this real? And they do that every time. And I'm just like, if it was real, you'd be burning your hand. Like, let's, <laughs> let's walk through the logical <laughs> conclusions of this. Um, and, and so, like, and, and another funny thing about it is about, because it runs on water, you have to use, there's water tanks that have to be refilled every four to six hours. And so people will see me watering the fireplace. And I'm telling you, people's minds are blown. It is like they are tripping out. They'll be, because it's at a seminary or, you know, upper level Bible thing. So people are praying and fasting and they're in the middle of that. And they see me watering a fireplace and just, they cannot, how are you doing that? And because it's a Christian context, I feel safe in saying this. I say just another Christian paradox and I walk away. I just walk away. And so what we're looking at today in Mark 8, uh, verses 31 through 38, uh, it's going to be, uh, it's going to seem like a paradox, a contradiction, two ideas that don't go together, like fire and water, watering a fireplace. And so what we're looking at in these verses is a powerful and victorious, authoritative Savior that won salvation by suffering and then of his disciples who gained heaven by forfeiting it all on earth of love displayed by suffering in the cross of Jesus and then joy obtained in suffering. Joy obtained in suffering by disciples who would bear a cross for his name's sake. And so before we look at Mark 8, 31 through 38, we need to first set the table. Now what I mean by set the table is just like any good meal, what do we have to do before we eat here? We got to make sure the tables are set up, that everybody has a plate. You have your forks, you have your cups, you have your salad bowl, and in order to make that meal mean something, in order that it doesn't, uh, it's not plagued with difficulties in eating. Okay, like uh, some of the guys in here, we, we had steak last night. It was really manly. A lot of chest hair was grown last night. But just imagine if we ate steaks, when some of us didn't have tables to, to cut our meat on, and so it was kind of awkward. And think about if we didn't have knives. Those things can almost ruin a meal for some. And sometimes you just don't want to eat because of, of those difficulties. And so when we open God's word, it's important that we make sure our ducks are in a row in order to get the most out of the meal of God's word. And so the first and most necessary way that we could set the table for anyone hoping to gain insight from the Bible is to first realize the book that's in your hand. You are holding God's word. Everything in this book is everything that I need to know about God and his will 
in this life. And because it contains the words of God, what it says is authoritative, and I live under God's word. And so that's the first thing we can do. I don't co-reign with scripture. I don't live right here where if I disagree with the Bible, I can then as the head say, you know what, I'm gonna go a different route. We live as Christians under the authority of scripture. And so before we start, we have to realize this is God's word. It has an authority with it, and we have to obey it. And this, um, I believe that the Holy Spirit's grandest work on this side of heaven to sanctify believers, uh, to, to draw f- uh, Christians from sin unto conformity in Christ is to inspire men to write God's word. You want to know God's will in your life? Read God's word. And because of this belief, I take God's word above mine, God's direction above others, and God's promises above my circumstances. So that's the first thing. Another way we can set the table for one who is looking to study God's word, one who hopes to be nursed by what God has breathed out for our growth in Christ is to look at the context of the passage being studied. And so two things, two easy ways to understand the authority this book demands and then understand the context this passage brings with it. And so let's read the passage and then let's start with prayer. So if you would read with me, I'm gonna start in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and of the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And then he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. If you would, let's pray. Lord, um, we want to be nourished by your word. Uh, We come here uh, because of your goodness to us, Lord, in Christ. And, and, and we come and we gather and assemble together as your, your children to, to learn what you would have for us today in, in this passage. And Lord, I ask for your help and we ask for your help as a church. Um, you have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, I seek. And so, Lord, in faith, I ask that, that because of your son and what he has done perfectly on my behalf, Lord, would you... Lord, would you teach us what is true of you, Lord, and what is not true of you, Lord. May we lay that aside and may may King's Cross forget that. Lord, we want to make great of your son. Lord, make great of your name for the sake of your city, for your church, Lord, for your glory. Lord, we want your glory to fill every corner of this earth. And so, Lord, would you be present today, tonight, in these short few moments, Lord, and in our short few minutes of fellowship together over meals, Lord, may we be edifying 
and, and encouraging, Lord, sharpening each other with your word. Lord, teach us what it means to be a disciple because of the Savior that we have in Jesus. Lord, it's in your name I pray. Amen. All right. So the first thing we need to do is look at context of the passage. In chapter 8 of Mark, there are a series of authoritative signs and authoritative words. So the signs are he feeds 4,000 and he heals a blind man. And we see these authoritative words. Jesus teaches his disciples to watch out, beware, be cautious of the teaching of the Pharisees, okay? And so these authoritative signs and these authoritative words lead up to this question that Jesus has to ask Peter. And then that question leads to a huge teaching moment by Jesus, which is what we're going to be looking at today. So the context to help make sense of this passage, authoritative signs and words that lead to a question, and that question leads to teaching, Jesus' big teaching moment. So we're going to be spending a lot of time in the teaching moment. So authoritative signs happen, there's some teaching, and Jesus asks Peter two questions in verses 27 through 29. The first question is positioning Peter for the second. He is cornering Peter, and Peter is about to get it. So the first question is, Jesus looks at Peter, hey, Peter, what do the people say I am? Who do they say that I am? And Peter goes, well, you know, some people think that you're Elijah, and some people think you're John the Baptist, and others say you're a prophet. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. And that question leads Jesus and lines Peter up for the second. Now, this question, the second question, there's no neutral answer. You cannot give a neutral answer to this question. There's no on the fence. You're either on one side or you are on the other. A similar situation to this is, I know a lot of you have probably experienced this. There is a very big event coming up this November. And there are two candidates. And you can ask, like me, in ignorance of uh, of New Hampshire, I'll ask people, hey, so how do people, what do people think about Hillary Clinton? And what do people think about Donald Trump here in New Hampshire? And I could ask Jacob that. And Jacob would say, you know, some people think this about Donald Trump. And some people think about Hillary Clinton like this. And, you know, based off of what I see, I think that so-and-so might win the state. Okay, that's cool. What do you think about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton? You can't, there is, that is a polarizing issue. You cannot land on one side of the fence on it. There are, there's way too much stuff out there for you to have a neutral answer to that. And so Jesus asks Peter, so who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And so he either has to view Jesus as less than he is and agree with the crowds that he's just a good man, a good prophet, a man son of the Lord, not that he's a bad man, but that he's less than God. Or he has to affirm that he is the God-man, that he's the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and that he's the Messiah, the Redeemer of God's people. And so Peter, uh, he wins on this. He, he says, Jesus, you're the Christ. So he affirms uh, Jesus in, in, for the rightful, rightful position that he has, being the Christ, the Messiah. Now, Peter claimed that Jesus was God's anointed Redeemer for his people, the one who would save them from their sins. Matthew 1 Uh, chapter 1, verse 21, uh, it gives this very reason. Why was Jesus named Jesus? So that he would save his people from their sins. So this was the Messiah that the Jewish people were looking for. The Jewish mindset of the Messiah or Christ, both of them speak of the same office, uh, did not disagree with that fact, but with the means of getting to it. They rightfully thought the Messiah would save his people from their sins and establish a kingdom as their king. But 
they would have never thought that it would have been accomplished by the way that Jesus was going to teach. They, they took the kingdom of God as literally toppling over the kingdom of that present time and establishing a physical one by force and power in his authority. And, and though they were correct that he would be victorious and authoritative, um, that how it would come about would look completely different. And so Jesus' teaching, where we're going to be getting at that big teaching section, uh, uh, about his role as the Messiah and how he would save his people, it, it's nothing less than unexpected. It's a plot twist. It is, if you watch Star Wars the way it was intended to be, four, five, six, and, and you've never been exposed to any American culture and you saw it for the first time, it, it, it's a buzzkill if you're born after the, the, the movies because you know the line. But when you watch the movies for the first time, and spoiler alert, Vader says, I'm your daddy, like Luke mind blown and we're our minds are blown actually weird geeky fact um that line was not originally in the script like um lucas didn't tell whoever was vader to say that line until about two minutes before and so mark hamill the luke skywalker when he hears that like not only is luke the character's mind blown but like mark hamill is like oh my gosh (laughs) what is this and so his mind's blown as well and so this teaching of jesus when he says what the Messiah is compared to the expectations of the time, it would have been totally unexpected. Um, I don't know if this might hit with some people as well. The Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis. That was like my, my jaw hit the floor when I, spoiler alert, when I found out that he's a ghost. <laughs> I'm like ruining movies left and right. Like, bam, bam. <laughs> Hope you guys don't like movies because I'm ruining them. Um, and so, yeah, Bruce Willis, like, your jaw is dropping. It's unexpected. So let's read verses 31 through 33 again with this in mind, that there's authoritative teachings, authoritative signs that have led to this big question by Peter, which Peter answers correctly, and, and he has a misunderstanding, which is kind of seen by verse 30 when he strictly charged them not to tell anybody. I think the idea behind that was Jesus was, you know, you guys don't exactly know everything about the Messiah let me teach you. And so let's look at verses 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So there's no misunderstandings in this. And Peter, who understood that plain teaching, took him aside, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so we see Jesus, God's appointed spirit-empowered redeemer, declaring that the Messiah must suffer many things. This includes his ministry, being rejected by people and dying. So he must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the religious leaders, that he must be killed, and that he must rise again. Do you see the purpose in this? Must. This must happen. There is a purpose behind it. There is a purpose behind Jesus suffering and dying and rising again. This did not just happen by circumstance. Uh, it wasn't a, a, a curveball for the Trinity when Jesus came down and this was the result. God's will was that Jesus suffer, be rejected, die, and then rise to glory. This wasn't to display Jesus as an example of self-sacrifice, though that can be an application of the cross. This wasn't to prove to the world that God was good-natured to a sinful world, though it did. 
the ultimate, this ultimately was to display God's glory in our salvation. Remember the story. Mankind created good in the garden, Adam. And Adam decides to live apart from the rule of God. He disobeys the one commandment given. And because of that, by breaking this one commandment given, man sinned. And because of that, sin entered the world. And the world no longer acts as the way it should. Things no longer are the way it should be. By Jesus living that life that we couldn't live, by living perfectly in whole person righteousness, acting and uh, fulfilling the law of God both internally in, his, in the seat of his very person, and it wasn't just exterior righteousness, by doing that and dying the death that we deserved, by inheriting the punishment that if, if someone didn't take our place, we would have taken ourselves, God's character is magnified. By Jesus doing this, a perfect God made a way for a sinful people to enjoy him forever. God's holiness and righteousness and love and mercy, all of his character attributes, I'm telling you, it is just an explosion of goodness. I'm just, I wanted to say flavors, but like that is the gospel. And so Peter, as we see in this, because Jesus said that very plainly, Peter goes, oh no, oh no. There's a crowd, there's disciples. He just went out on a limb. He, he stepped out of the crowd. He went from being associated with them, you're just a good guy, a moral teacher, a prophet, maybe John the Baptist, to standing over here and saying that he is more than that. And Jesus just contradicted what they thought was true of the Messiah. And he is freaking out, understandably, with that mindset of the Messiah. Of course you would be. And so he takes him aside and he says, Jesus, Messiahs don't suffer. I don't know if you got the memo, but Messiahs don't do that. You are, you're an authority figure. You're going you're gonna to take over this kingdom. You're going to slay every person that makes fun of you in here. You're going to shove every guy that, you know, gave you a swirl. You're going to put them in the locker. You're going you're gonna to burn the school down. You're going to stick it to the man because this life is all yours for the taking. Think about what you could have in this life as the ultimate authority because this is yours by right. And what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do in the next verse? He looks at the crowds. He sees his disciples, and he takes Peter, and he rebukes him. He rebukes him saying that you're, you're not focused on the things of God. You're focused on the things of man. The good news of the gospel is that the God-man Jesus suffered, was rejected, and died in your place, in my place. And Peter didn't understand the necessity of the cross. Peter didn't <laughs> understand the necessity of the cross. If God did do, didn't do these things on your behalf, humanity's hope of overcoming the fall of Genesis 3, that wouldn't have happened. We, w- we need a savior to take our place. And so if, if, if Jesus would have lived, that would have been our death. For the greater good Jesus took, forsook what was rightfully his for the sake of those who would be redeemed. And so it's on this backdrop that Jesus teaches us of what it means to be a disciple. In view of the Messiah, the suffering Messiah, and of his gospel, Jesus teaches his disciples to follow because because Jesus suffered and because he died and he rose again and conquered sin, salvation was won for us. Um, to paraphrase uh, Alan Cole in his commentary on Mark, if you don't understand Messiahship, you're not going to understand discipleship. And we see that in Peter. Peter didn't understand <coughs> Jesus because he had a faulty view. 
And so his, his, his views were messed up. Again, Messiahship defines our discipleship. In the, in the shadow of Jesus' cross, we carry ours. And so when you hear these next couple verses about what it means to be a disciple, I don't want you to think of payment to be made. For as we've, as we've seen, as we've seen, God's will was that Jesus suffered. You're going to be sick of me saying this. God's will was that Jesus suffer, be rejected, and die, and then rise to prove himself the victor so that we might be saved unto God in Christ and himself, have union with God. Sinful people reunited in, in union with God by faith. And so the working out of salvation is not a keeping of salvation, but a response to the salvation already awarded. The labor of discipleship is not the labor to win God's love. It is the labor of God's love working itself out within us. The gospel of Jesus is a deep well. It's a deep well. The grandest of sinners can jump in and have no fear, completely sheltered from the wrath of God and from the slavery of sin. And so read with me verses 34 through 38 again with this context in mind. And calling the crowd to him, with his disciples, he said to them, If any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And so from these, these verses, we see sim- two, two simple points. Two simple points. We see a call for discipleship, and then this, this call being broken down and, and grounded. And so the call is, let him deny himself, take up your cross, and you follow me. And so we see that self-denial and self-sacrifice are part of being a disciple of Jesus. That is very clear. There's no getting around that. Suffering will be a part of following Jesus, but more specifically, suffering because you're following Jesus is part of following Jesus. Now, reading those verses, and we've read a narrative so far, what character does that sound a lot alike than what we've read previously? Jesus. Jesus suffered. Jesus was rejected. Jesus died. Jesus carried a cross. Jesus is not calling us to do something that he himself did not already do on our behalf. And so, some of you guys are probably asking this question. It's a great question to ask. The text will only answer questions that you ask it. And so, why suffer? Why would, we, why would I deny myself? Why would I be willing to walk to my execution? Because 100% of people that carried crosses back then died on a cross. You don't, you just not like, hey man, you know, I'm, uh, it's not like CrossFit, you know, where you're like doing some like weird workout. Hey man, so I was like lifting a cross, running five miles, you know. Uh, you, you carried crosses to your execution. Okay, maybe not 100%. Jesus had someone else carry it for a little bit, but you get the point. You died on a cross. And so Christ followers do not seek a, a present heaven, but a future heaven. Your heart is inclined to a future heaven. Uh, you're looking forward to that. We live by faith to make disciples of all nations, telling them the good news that the purposes that they're seeking is ultimately found 
in Jesus, that there is a hope in the life to come, that life, which we know is so true, is not found in this life. All you need is this book, reading a simple text or two, and looking around and seeing the hurt, seeing the brutality of life and sin, and you realize that hope, it's hopeless to find hope in in this world alone. And so, we see why we suffer by how Jesus grounds us in this text. We see that for those that save their life, will lose it. Um, so if you live free in this life, you die. Um, New Hampshire motto, live free, live free or die. So you can live free in this life and you'll die. That, that, that could be the, the, maybe a motto for this text. And if you would lose your life in this life for the sake of the Messiah and for his gospel, you'll save it. And so let me first hit the the Messiah, or for the Christ and his gospel, that's, that's just two sides of the same coin. You can't have the gospel without a suffering Messiah. You cannot have those, one without the other. And so if you live free in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, you live. Live free in Christ, you live. You don't have to die. The logic behind this is seen in verses 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The idea, it's a commercial marketplace metaphor. Um, what, what does it profit someone to buy something at a higher price than the object pur- purchased? Why would you get something that is going to eventually go away for the price of something that will last for all eternity? Your soul goes on. I, you know, this outfit's killer, but this outfit's not going with me when I'm buried in the ground. When I go to heaven, it is just me and my faith in Jesus. Your present actions have future consequences. Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and his holy angels. This is the reason for missions, this verse. We see that our present condition, why we should live, you can live free and die, or you can live in faith and live to eternity. And some people have the understanding that, that God will we'll let them live free in this life, and then when they die, they get another chance. And we don't see that in Scripture. And so if you deny Jesus now, you don't get a second chance. You have one life to live, and you can choose to have faith or you can choose not to. And the Bible is clear there is a judgment to come, and that's why we suffer for the gospel. We go because there are people that are literally going to suffer for the rest of the existence of time until that word doesn't mean anything because someone didn't get uncomfortable and share about the purpose and the joy they have in Jesus. But the good news is, is that if you follow Jesus, resurrection unto life for all eternity is yours. And so just as, as Jesus suffered, you suffer. And, and just as your Messiah rose from the, from the dead and reigns in heaven, you, you'll be resurrected into life and the fullness of joy in heaven with him. You'll be living in joy. The, the Christian call is an honest one. We're, we're, not, we're not bluffing. Uh, we, we're pretty straightforward. You can, you can join in faith. It, it's going to stink. There's going to be hardship. But, but this is where, this is where I, I, I kind of make a point. Without a God, a Savior, a helper, or a community built on something deeper than mere appearances without inner joy is much harder, is much harder. And I would argue it's a hell in this life 
that will end in more suffering if you don't have God. And so it's hardship or it's hardship with purpose and a joy, the paradox. This passage doesn't end in self-sacrifice. It actually ends in your best interest. If you give up the little time you have here on earth, you gain, you gain God. And so the implication of this text, suffering was central to Jesus' life. It was for the very purpose that he came. He denied himself that we could be right with God. And because of this, we should expect to suffer as Christians. We should expect it. Why would we expect anything more than what the second person of the Trinity experienced here on earth? Suffering shows the worth that we place in God over our circumstances, our desire, our culture, and the sin that we once were deeply in love with. We would say, I would rather suffer and have God than to not have God and have everything this world would have. It shows where your heart is. Suffering also shows the nature of this world. Like we said with Genesis 3, the world has fallen. The world has fallen. And that is seen in how we suffer. There is wrongdoings um, all the time. And so as Jesus suffered because of sin, we'll suffer because of sin. But we go down a path of pain, not alone. We go with our union with Christ, the very thing that's most important to us. And it's on a path that he traveled before us. Sin inflicted by self, by others, by environment, by circumstances, by predators, by manipulators, by egotistical bosses, by abusive fathers, by false teachers who claim the title of pastor, shady neighbors, reckless drivers, abusive cops, and racism. These crosses are carried with a sweet fellowship of a believer's savior. You can go through these trials because of Genesis 3, because you have you have a New Testament Savior. You have the Messiah on your side. And you have a church that is carrying their crosses right next to you with the same Savior and the same faith, holding the same hope in the same God. Don't seek heaven in this life. Only look for a second. Like again, look at a second at the Bible and look at your surroundings around you and you're gonna realize that there, there's something more. There's something more. So uh, implication two of this would be because we know that God uses suffering for good. Suffer. That would be, that would be the, 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 one of the clearest things. Suffer. Any Christian who wants to become more and more like Jesus is going to have to suffer. And so the question is, how do we suffer for Jesus? What are ways that we can suffer? And very simply, if you want to um, count this as suffering in, in some sense here in America, suffer in your witness. We can suffer in our witness. Every sinner has just as much of a right to hear the same gospel we heard and have a chance to respond to the same gospel that saved us. We do not get to call who is saved and who is not saved. We are called to go and make disciples of the nations. And so if that means that we have to inconvenience ourselves in order to reach people that are far from God, then we do it then we do it. Maybe it's giving up a night alone with your family in order to invite your neighbor over for dinner that doesn't know the Lord. Just simple. You don't have to show the gospel down the throat. Build a relationship and, and, and show God's love in your life and eventually pray for conversations and opportunities. But if you're not looking for opportunities, opportunities will not show themselves. Suffering financially to make disciples. Maybe it's giving to different organizations that are Great Commission focused, reaching unreached people groups, or maybe uh, different causes that are evangelical and Christian in your city. Maybe it's giving to your local uh, New England, you know, church planner. Maybe that's it. Jacob uh, is going to pay me 20 for saying that. Uh, spending more money 
um, so you can throw a party for your unbelieving friends. The easiest way I found in New England to witness to unbelievers without a shadow of a doubt you will have people over your house is if you have a Super Bowl party. It's not, Down south, we don't play football. But up here, you do, and you play NFL, and I don't, I don't get it. But you could do that, and, and people will, will swarm. You know, you're like, hey, I got queso and chips. All right, I'm there. You know, like, um, so you could have a Super Bowl party. Or maybe you can invite people over Thanksgiving or Christmas. And some of us would object and say, you know, it's my right to have Thanksgiving with my family. It's my right to have Christmas with just my family. That's kind of, we keep that sacred. You can do that. You could do that. Um, but is that suffering? Is that something you can give in faith to God? Nothing wrong if that's how, if, if you do that. Um, so another way is maybe not compromising on what the Bible says. Um, if you get in a conversation with someone and they're talking about, I, don't, you, I mean, you name it. You can, do, you can do marriage views. You can do abortion. You can do, I mean, whatever. And they say, you know what? I just kind of, um, I think this way. What do you think? And it's very easy for us to stand over here and go, well, you know, I haven't really thought about that much. I, wow. Um, you know, I kind of try to stay away from those conversations. You can do that. You can do that. Or you can say, you know, I have thought about that. I've prayed about it a lot. There's been a lot of tears because some of my friends have aborted their kids. And, you know, wh- the, the question, you know, where are they at or what, whatever you want to, but people have thought about that. And so maybe, maybe this is an encouraging word. Why don't you stand up and say, well, thanks for asking. Let me, let me tell you about Jesus and what, what he's told me about what life means according to the Bible. It'll hurt. There have been times in which you know, you just like walk away and you feel like you've been punched in the gut and you feel like you're some barbarian for, for believing in a book that is so old. Um, yeah, I'm not going to tell that story. Um, another way that we could suffer is sharing the suffering of those that are in your city. As you guys know better than me, the state of New Hampshire is, is suffering with the plague of false promises that illegal drugs offer. One out of every five people, no, excuse me, one, excuse me, one person every five days dies of a drug overdose in Manchester, New Hampshire. Most of those are heroin. So what could suffering look like? Maybe, maybe suffering can look like you inconveniencing your life to help those recovering um, or they're lost in addiction. Maybe it means giving time and resources to people who will most likely take advantage of your time and resources. But isn't that the gospel? Isn't that the gospel? God loving a people who were looking out for themselves over others, who were loving themselves over God and neighbor. Another way, um, this third point is for men. I don't mean to be, um, to, to, to say something shocking or maybe uh, inappropriate. I don't know where y'all, y'all stand on this, but understand uh, this is just a, a burden for me. Um, I've seen it tear apart lives. I've seen it tear apart the pastorate for some. Um, and so understand, I'm trying to as respectfully as I can uh, mention this, but a very practical way for men to live this out is to suffer in your purity. Though you are told this, it is not your right to have every freedom our culture offers, especially in regards to technology. The fight for purity has changed. What once required you to leave your home, to be seen by people, to go into a store, and to purchase 
stills and movie and you would have to be embarrassed as you stood in front of the cash register that you were buying those types of products now can be enjoyed in the security and privacy of your home where 70 to 80% of the content is free online and the highest of quality in any genre or fantasy you want. The f- porn can be viewed anywhere with almost any device and any fantasy is within your reach. Now, this uh, quote is, is by the U.S. Department of Justice, um, and it's, it's talking about children, but, but don't be fooled. This, this is still a problem for adults as well. Um, and so the U.S. Department of Justice uh, gave this statement concerning the radical nature of the accessibility uh, of pornography. Never before in the history of telecommunications media in the United States has so much indecent and obscene material been so easily accessible by so many minors in so many American homes with so few restrictions. That wasn't a pastor that said that. That's the government. 64% of self-identified Christian men view pornography at least once a month. 37% of men view it at least several times a week. And 39% of Christian men say they believe that their use is excessive. In 2015, did you know that one out of every five mobile searches was porn. One out of every five. It's a problem. And it's easy to live a life with no accountability on every front of technology. That's an easy life to live, but it's a cross in this life to submit to accountability and saying this is more than just men being men and boys being boys, to say that this is a sin that needs to be addressed. It is easy to live a life chasing casual relationships, sexual fantasies, or um, sexual lifestyles, God's word, God's word condemns as sin. It's a, cr- a cross to deny yourself for a time. I know as a single guy, I'm getting married this fall, so there's a time period in which you might have to restrain yourself from, from indulging in what our culture says go. And maybe it means that you have to, to restrain yourself for a lifetime, a lifetime, that that's your cross. But Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. And Jesus carried a cross for you so that you can get the crown in heaven and give it to him. God's will and God's good are bigger than your dreams. And so in conclusion, God's will is that you suffer and that you be rejected and die if need be. But you'll rise again. You'll rise again to heaven and to glory not to pay for your sins. You're not doing this to pay for your sins or to show others how holy you are by the pains in your life, but to display the glory of God in your salvation and to invite others to participate in the same. Remember, suffering shows the world what is important to us. It shows others that we have, that we would choose to suffer for this good news over anything the world could offer us. And suffering is a part of life, but there's freedom in our Savior his way is easy. His yoke is light. It's faith and repentance. That is the easy yoke of Jesus Christ. And in our journey to heaven will include hardship. Jesus went down a path that he calls us to go down. And he proved himself the example and the victor. And the destination of that path is the city of God. Do not think that you're suffering needlessly. needlessly excuse me. And I know that there are circumstances that seem to cloud us sometimes and seem to overwhelm us, but understand you can't see but two feet in front of your path. Understand that that path, though dark, will lead to light in Christ one day. God will right every wrong. 
And so don't fear suffering. Don't hunt suffering. I'm not saying go out there and just hit me, hit me with a truck, you know, or whatever it is. Like, I'm not saying hunt for it, but embrace it when, when, when it comes. Don't run away from it. Understand that God uses those things for your good. And so if you have an opportunity to suffer for Jesus and his gospel, embrace it. Let's pray. Lord, we gather here and we've seen your works and we've seen your authoritative words. Lord, we've been impacted by them. Lord, in our lives, maybe by mentors and Lord, the gifts that you've given us, the circumstances that you've brought um, from darkness to light. Maybe you, you've, you've made us, helped us to, to pay the bills when we thought we couldn't or um, to get over um, a sin that we thought was, was helpless, Lord, especially for, for men in this country um, where, where it seems so overwhelming at times. Lord, you, you've been so faithful, and I know you ask us, what, what, do, you, what do you say that I am? And, and Lord, we undoubtedly, we, we probably would say you're the Christ, Lord, but we have so many misunderstandings, and, and, and Lord, we have so much baggage and history that have influenced our thoughts about the Messiah, and Lord, we... We pray that you would change those thoughts according to your word, Lord. You would conform us to your image and to your views of yourself, Lord. May we not put you in a box, but Lord, may we praise you for who you are, Lord, as your, as your word proclaims, Lord. Lord, would you help us not to be, to be foolish in how we respond. May we be careful in our words to you. Lord, may we praise you, and we do praise you for the suffering that you did on our behalf. That you would, you would take our place, Lord, that we, we deserve that cross, and we deserve to, to bear the shame and the guilt and to die and to suffer for, for what we've done, Lord. But we suffer because you're good, and Lord, we, we take your word um, as true. Lord, may we bear our cross and follow you. Lord, may we count you more worthy than our, um, our circumstances. Lord, would you be with us as we encounter a Genesis 3 world? Lord, would you be with us in our words as we navigate these waters of, um, of politics, Lord, and, and, and governing and of, of racism and racial reconciliation? May we have an ear for, for those that are suffering, Lord, in view of your gospel. May, um, Lord, may we impact the city, not because of us, Lord, but because of your spirit in us. Lord, would you use us in a mighty way among the lost of Manchester and New Hampshire, Lord, whoever we counter. Lord, to make your name great, not for us to prove anything, but Lord, for us to rest in your, your promises. Thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. Thank you for your word that we live in a culture where we're not persecuted for having a Bible open in our, in our language. Lord, may we, may we praise you well. It's your name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.